1: Hello, welcome to New Books in Buddhist Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Luke Thompson, the host of the channel. Today I'll be speaking with Jacob Dalton about his recent book, The Taming of the Demons Violence and Liberation in Tibetan Buddhism, published by Yale University Press in 2011. This book examines violence, both symbolic and otherwise, in Tibetan Buddhism. Dalton focuses in particular on the age of fragmentation, here 842 to 986 and draws on previously unexamined Dunhuang manuscripts to show that this period was one of great creativity and innovation, and a time when violent myths and rituals were instrumental in adapting Buddhism to local interests, thereby allowing Buddhism to firmly establish itself in Tibet. While much 20th century scholarship faithfully followed Tibetan historiography's assertion that the age of fragmentation was a dark time during which the light of Buddhism faded completely, Dalton not only confirms that Buddhism continued throughout this period, but also looks to the Dunhuang materials to show that it was in fact the age of fragmentation narratives of demon taming that laid the groundwork for the emergence of a new pan-Tibetan Buddhist identity beginning in the 11th century. Central to Dalton's project are a myth and a ritual. The myth is that of the subjugation of the demoness rudra, in which a compassionate but wrathful Buddhist deity violently defeats the wild rudra, using a means that Buddhism condemns violence and yet is used as a force for good in this case. This narrative encapsulates a theme that runs throughout the book, the Buddhist ambivalence towards violence, an ambivalence present in the tradition from its earliest days, but which found its fullest expression in Tantric Buddhism. The ritual, on the other hand, is the so-called liberation ritual, in which a victim, usually an effigy is prescribed, is ritually murdered and then purified. Dalton focuses in particular on a Dunhuang ritual manual, which, incidentally, makes no mention of an effigy, thus leaving some doubt as to whether or not the manual intends an actual human victim. This rite and the story of Ruja constitute constitute a pair of sorts, and together served as a theoretical, historical, mythic, and practical model whereby the native evil demons of Tibet could be tamed, i.e. ritually murdered and purified, and employed in the service of Buddhism. Shulton also demonstrates how the themes of violence and demon taming continued beyond the age of fragmentation. For example, a composite work called the Pillar Testament, late 11th to mid-12th century, contains a legend in which the 7th century king Songtsen Gampo had to subjugate the land of Tibet, envisioned as, and thus identified as none other than, a huge Rakshasi demoness lying on her back, by pinning this demoness down with 13 temples. In this way, the legend carries the model of demon subjugation that was used at the local level during the Age of Fragmentation to a national level during the Second Imperial Period. Later on, as Tibetans ceased to think of their own evil nature and autochthonous demons as the greatest threat to Buddhism, and instead shifted their attention to peoples and powers at the periphery of their realm, the same model of demon subjugation was applied, with Tibet's perceived enemies, particularly the Mongols, taking the role of sacrificial victim. The book's content is wide-ranging, yet skillfully woven together through the dual themes of violence and liberation, i.e. demon subjugation. Along the way, we hear about the differences between Chinese and Tibetan receptions of Buddhist scriptural attitudes towards violence, Padmasambhava as a demon tamer, the Indian Kalika Purana, King Yesheo's late 10th century attempts to prohibit the liberation rite, the Fifth Dalai Lama's use of demon-quelling rites for military success, and 18th, 19th, and 20th century British and Tibetan views and condemnations of what appeared to be sacrificial rituals. These are but a few of the many topics covered in this book's seven chapters. Three appendices provide a translation of the Rudra myth, as well as transcriptions, translations, and transliterations of two t- uh, liberation rite manuals from Dunhuang. This book will be particularly valuable to those researching or interested in violence and religion, Tibetan historiography, the importance of Dunhuang materials and the study of pre-modern Tibet, the relationship between Buddhism and autochthonous deities, the use of myth in the construction of Buddhist identity and history, and 19th and 20th century Western views of Tibet. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books in Buddhist Studies. I'm Luke Thompson, the host of the channel. Today I'm with Jacob Dalton, and we're going to be talking about his new book, The Taming of the Demons. Violence and Liberation in Tibetan Buddhism, uh, published by Yale University Press in 2011. This book was shortlisted for the 2012 American Academy of Religion Book Award in the Historical Study of Religion category. It won the 2013 E. Jean Smith Book Prize on Inner Asia, given by the Association of Asian Studies China and Inner Asia Councils. And it also won the 2013 Bernard S. Cohn Book Prize, sponsored by the Association of Asian Studies South Asia Council. Jacob Dalton is associate professor and Kentse Foundation Distinguished Professor of Tibetan B- Buddhism at the University of California, Berkeley, with appointments in the Department of South and Southeast Asian Studies and also in the Department of East Asian Languages and Cultures. Jacob Dalton, welcome to the show, and thank you for taking the time to speak with me today.
0: Thanks, Luke. Thanks for having me.
1: No, no. pleasure's mine. So. I was wondering if you could just begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself, where you're from, how you came to the study of Tibet and or Buddhism, um, any important influences in your life, for example, uh, mentors, academic advisors.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, I, I, well, I, I first encountered Buddhism as an undergraduate um, at Amherst college. And uh, at the time when I was a freshman, Robert Thurman was uh, just in his last year before moving to Columbia, and I took a course on introduction of religions, and he taught one little segment of the course on Buddhism, and it sort of caught my interest. And the very next year, Janet Giazzo started at Amherst, and Mm. so I enrolled in courses with her all year. And it was sort of around this time that I was also starting to... Uh, question uh, like a sort of typical undergraduate does and Mm. getting interested in philosophy. So at the same time as I was taking that year of courses with Janet, I was also enrolled in a year long uh, sequence on uh, Western political philosophy. Mm. Um, And so I was just, I was at first sort of interested in comparative philosophy uh, and uh, getting very excited about Buddhist philosophy and and then I um, took some time off from college and uh, ended up doing a study abroad program uh, with Hubert Claire and the SIT program which has um, uh, sort of hosted a, a lot of undergrad students who went on t- to do PhDs in Tibetan studies mm. Um, so that was in, that was the spring semester of 1990 Mm -hmm. and it was on that trip that I, I was shocked to discover that this isn't just an abstract philosophy, but there are actually people sitting in caves (laughs) and so on, uh, doing these practices Mm. and that just blew me away and I, um, realized I wanted to spend the rest of my life going back and forth to Asia and having a, a real reason to be there mm-hmm. um and so i then went on and finished my b.a. not at amherst but at um a tiny college called marlboro college in vermont mm-hmm. and uh and um and then yeah ended up doing my phd at michigan under donald lopez my mphd
2: mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
0: in buddhist studies and uh Gradually, my interests moved from the philosophical more toward ritual um, and the history of ritual, which is kind of what I guess characterizes a lot of my work um, since uh, mm-hmm. since completing my Ph.D. Mm. It's still, philosophy lurks in the background, but <laughs> it's ritual in particular and the ways that Buddhist philosophy kind of is instantiated in in ritual and how that changes over time. Mm -hmm. Um, And do you want me to continue on with my autobiography beyond my PhD or should I stop there for now?
1: Um, Yeah, well we can, um, do do you mean in terms of the work you've uh, pursued since uh, getting your PhD? Yeah. Um, No, you can stop there. That's good. Um, Thank you very much. Um, So the, um, Your previous, a lot of your previous work, not all of it, obviously, has, um, but before this 2011 book, and of course, you've got another one about to come out, um, I guess, in 2015. But prior to uh, The the Taming of the Demons, um, a lot of your work uh, focused on uh, cataloging the Stein Collection of the Dunhuang Manuscripts held at the British Library. Um, So how did you come to write your second book? Uh, and your first bet- book, which um, co-authored book, was on that. But how did you come to write your second book on the theme of violence in Tibetan Buddhism?
0: Yeah, so um, uh, it's so I, it's a slightly unorthodox path. I, I so my PhD was on this one Nyingma Tantra and its whole history from its inception in the ninth century right through to the present day, hmm. um, and the, so that's. Uh, normally people's first book is their PhD reworked, but that's actually the book that's coming out with Columbia in, in another year or something. I see. Um, but so after I finished my PhD, I got what amounted to kind of a postdoc position for three years working with the international Dunhuang project at the British library. Mm. Um, and I was working very closely with Sam Bunskayak, who's a dear friend and colleague, uh, and, um, our job was to catalog the tantric manuscripts in the Stein collection uh, meaning uh, and meaning the the manuscripts they found in the library cave of Dunhuang. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, by, by by tantric in this case does that mean all the ones in Tibetan or,
0: or yes okay yeah uh, focusing on the Tibetan in particular so the the those the Stein, Manuscripts from Dunhuang were originally catalogued by Louis de Lavellet-Poussin during Mm. World War I. But but at the time, you know, Tantric Studies was basically non-existent. And Mm. so if you look at his catalog, it's, you know, as one might expect, incredibly well-informed about Sutric Buddhism. But when it came to the Tantric Manuscripts, he just says sort of mantras and moves on to the next <laughs> entry. Um, so they, so the IDP had applied for a grant to digitize a lot of the Tibetan tantric manuscripts and then hired me as a full-time cataloger uh, to yeah, to, to read through all of them and write wow. descriptive entries. So that was just this incredibly lucky opportunity where for three years... Um, I just had free run of the British library and uh, my own interests fit very well with what the IDP wanted of me. So no one ever said a word to me that I should be doing anything different than what I was. Mm. And and Sam and I uh, just had a great three years gradually kind of coming to terms with the and reckoning with the tantric manuscripts, which, you know, to start out, neither of us were very well prepared mm. to stand at all, but um, but it was great having a partner in crime, and we gradually worked our way through the collection. Yeah. Um, and so that produced the catalog, and then uh, I, I have a couple of other book projects that kind of grew out of that. So the first one was this book on violence that's the subject <laughs> of this interview, mm-hmm. and um That basically happened because um, actually I had outstanding, a translation from my PhD research of the most elaborate version of the taming of Rudra myth, Mm -hmm. in which the Buddhas sort of take on a violent form and and kill Rudra, this demon of primordial ignorance. Mm -hmm. Um, So I had that and didn't use it for my PhD, but had it lurking in the background. And, And then as I was reading through these Dunhuang manuscripts, um, I came across <clears throat> one uh, manuscript in particular, but then later began to realize there are a couple of manuals in addition describing a similar right. But this manuscript contained instructions for what's known as the liberation right or drolwa right, where one usually takes an effigy and, um, sort of calls the soul of one's enemy into the, uh, usually a demon, into the effigy and uh, and destroys the effigy, thereby sort of, you know, causing harm to the person. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of the ritual pair to the myth of, uh, you know, Rudra's taming. Mm-hmm. So you have this myth-ritual pairing that with, with the myth justifying... The violent, the use of violent means, mm-hmm. um, by the Buddhas, and then a ritual for how to reenact that myth um, by you know directing a violent activity toward some demonic force.
1: Mm-hmm. I see,
0: um, and so I sort of was surprised, by how explicit some of these manuals were. I hadn't encountered this kind of material before, and. Um, thought increasingly of this myth ritual pair as a nice as nice they complemented each other nicely mm-hmm. and and um then gradually that grew into a book of where i was just kind of trying to come to terms with what these two texts meant and how they um affected Tibetan uh Buddhist uh culture and history through Mm -hmm. the ages so that the book sort of starts with those two texts as a jumping off point and then moves through Mm -hmm. Tibetan history, tracing some of the the themes that are in them through different moments in Tibetan history, Mm -hmm. um, which is basically what the book is about.
1: I see. (laughs) So, so, um, and so getting into the book itself, um, the, the first thing I wanted to mention is just about sources. It seems like one of, uh, there, there are many, uh, this book um, makes many uh, contributions to the field of uh, Tibetan Buddhist studies, but one of the most original, it seems, uh, or one uh, one of the original ones, it seems, would be the use of these Dunwan manuscripts. And you mentioned in the beginning of the book that these really haven't been used very much. Um, and I was just wondering if you could say one word why uh, about why that is that they haven't been used.
0: Um. Well, I, I mean, there's a lot of work that's been done on them in the form of articles, mm-hmm. um, and uh, but it's—I mean—it's a large collection to have the time to read through is would be difficult, and yeah, um, in general, at both the British Library and the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, mm-hmm. where the half of the collection sits. Um, you know, it's, it's, you have to call up one manuscript at a time and it's very yeah. laborious. So I see. It, it was partly just how fortunate this opportunity was that I suddenly had free run of the library and could run, could, could go down and bring up as many manuscripts as I want whenever I wanted.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and having the, the free time of three years to just read through them gave me a kind of a larger vision of the collection as a whole. I see. Um, So in that way, it enabled me to kind of, in in fact, each of the three book projects that have grown out of that cataloging work um, that I'm working on, I see them as together kind of providing a, a larger vision of the significance of the collection as a whole in a way that just for pragmatic reasons, hadn't been possible before.
1: Right. So, so okay, so um, so moving on into the uh, introduction, we already, uh, in the introduction you write that the history of violence in Tibet is rooted in a fundamental pairing of myth and ritual, the myth of the demon Rudra's subjugation and the euphemistically named liberation rite. We've already discussed these a bit, um, but these are central to the books. I just wanted to, uh, I mean, these very central to the book. So I want to point these out in the myth of the demon Rudra is basically, uh, this story of the demon Rudra who in a former life was a disciple of a Buddhist monk, um, who misunderstood his, um, this monk's teachings was angered and, uh, uh, banished this monk, his teacher, and then descended into a life of hedonism, um, eventually descending into Avici hell, but then through a moment's reflection on his past evil deeds, uh, he begins to ascend towards better realms until he's eventually born as a human. Uh, but as a human, however, he is particularly evil and eventually becomes the leader of all the beasts and demons um, on the island of Lanka, which is where he's born. And anyway, it's a quite an elaborate story, but eventually the Rudra is defeated by the, uh, the the Heruka Buddha, who swallows him and purifies the demon inside his belly. So correct me if I'm wrong, but here the you've got sort of two parties who are both, uh, uh, engaged in violence, Rudra, and then the the, uh, uh, the heruka. Um, but one is doing it sort of in a way that is sanctioned by tantric Buddhism, and one is doing it not in that way. Is that yeah. it? Okay, and then the liberation, right, as you described, is uh, this um, sort of usually involving an effigy in which you sort of sacrifice the victim, but for the benefit of the victim. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. So, um, so we'll, we'll we'll discuss those a bit more um, as we go, but, um, moving on to chapter one, you, you discuss the history of compassionate violence in Buddhism. And, uh, although the apparently oxymoronic concept of compassionate killing may have found its most explicit, uh, expression in the tantra's, um, you note that from early on, Buddhism acknowledged the moral complexity of violence and that uh, this began to be further developed in Mahayana Buddhism, in which there was a greater emphasis on intention than there was on adherence to monastic codes or, say, uh, behavioral norms. So I was wondering if you could just uh, discuss this um, this sort of doctrinal backdrop of Buddhist um, attitudes towards and ambivalence about violence.
0: Yeah, that I, I mean. So, as you say, the ambivalence around violence is sort of one of the main themes that I trace through the whole book. And um, you said that uh, that, in a way, the Buddha and Rudra in the myth are both involved in violence, but uh, somehow the Buddha's violence is compassionate and good, whereas Rudra's is demonic and evil, mm-hmm. um, and yet their means are so sort of alarming and similar and alarmingly similar. um, Mm -hmm. And that, that it raises certain questions about how you tell the difference. So that's, um, that's a difficult question and kind of the central question uh, that or a central question, at least around violence that we all have to reckon with as human beings. Mm -hmm. Um, And, part of what I wanted to um, question was a sort of overly simplistic view of Buddhism as just simply uh, nonviolent. Right. Right. When in fact they, they are, (laughs) you know, they're real intellectuals and they, are struggling with this intractable problem of violence mm. and recognizing the extent to which it's terrible and to be avoided and yet unavoidable and part of life and needs to be reckoned with. So there's this ambivalence that we all feel towards violence, um, which can even take a form of sort of a fascination with violence, as we see in the movies today
2: mm-hmm.
0: and, um, and in the violent imagery and the myth itself, So,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which is quite uh, gory, yes, and, and clearly they're in some way, for some reason, reveling in it. Um, so the first chapter really traces this struggle with violence and come trying the attempt to come to terms with this problem back from the Tantras, like you say, into the into um, the Sutras and in particular Mahayana Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Um, And, uh, and I, I trace it back to the Bodhisattvic idea of compassionate violence Mm -hmm. that you find in some of the, well, most famously in, in the story of the Buddha in a previous life as the ship's captain, Mm. he, uh, is on the ship with, I think 500 uh, merchants and um, discovers at some point that there's one guy on board who plans to murder everyone and steal all the, all the treasure on board. And so the Buddha reasons that, well, if he tells everyone that this is this guy's plan, they'll kill him. Um, And if he doesn't tell them, the guy will go ahead and kill them. And so the Buddha is sort of caught in this quandary and where there's going to be violence one way or the other, no matter what he does. Mm. So in a kind of self-sacrificial way, he decides the only possible solution in such situations is for him to kill the thief, thereby taking on the bad karma of, of murdering the thief himself rather than having... the the merchants take on that bad karma by killing the thief. Mm. So he does so. And and then because of his pure selfless motivation at the last moment, he, of course, is um, actually sort of karmically saved. And the thief Mm -hmm. goes, I think, to a good rebirth and everything works out nicely in the end. Yes. But it's only through, and this is sort of the paradox that's involved in some of this violence, it's only through the Buddha's, or the future Buddha, the Bodhisattva's um, willingness to endure the negative karma that he escapes the negative karma. Uh (laughs) In other words, he sort of accepts violence in order to transcend violence. So there's a sort of paradox there Mm -hmm. that I found interesting. In terms of the ambivalence that I've already mentioned here, right. how violence is part of life, and yet you want to somehow transcend or escape it, mm. and yet you can't escape it as long as you're trying to escape, because then you're doing violence to the idea of violence and sort of suppressing it, which can involve you in new forms of violence. Um and which, of course, ties into the larger Buddhist paradox of how do you defeat desire? How, do, when you want to defeat desire, you know, to mm-hmm. desire defeating desire is a paradox, and how do you accomplish such a thing? And so you find a similar kind of paradox with violence, where you want to suppress violence because it's awful, but that suppression itself can be in a form of violence.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So that that kind of paradox and ambivalence. The, all of these kind of moves are what I lay out in doctrinally in that first chapter. And that sort of sets the doctrinal stage for everything that, the more historical chapters that follow, uh, after that.
1: Okay. So that, so that's, um, so with that doctrinal backdrop, um, you move into, um, the chapter, the second chapter in which you're focusing on Tibet's age of fragmentation, or more specifically on the late 9th and 10th centuries. Um, and here you argue that rather than being a time of decay, this period saw not only the continuation of Buddhism, but in fact, the development of Buddhism uh, in new and creative ways. Um, and that central to this development was tantric myth and ritual. Um, and furthermore, you also uh, note that this development occurred sort of throughout um, Tibetan society, not just among a very small group of elites um, as had been as had previously been the case um, now the, the you, you you state that the prior to nine hundred the court was interested in the sort of non localized universal utopian like Buddhism. Uh, while the people, the historical actors during the age of fragmentation, were interested instead in application of Buddhism to a very local context. So there was this sort of uh, previous interest in kind of a utopian, non-localized Buddhism, and then it turns into this very localized form. So, um, I so, so so I wanted to ask first: to what extent is this view of the age of fragmentation new? Is this something that? Um, is sort of increasingly accepted by scholars of Tibetan history, culture, Buddhism. Um, And also, I wanted to ask, uh, in what way was tantric myth and ritual central to development um, of these sort of localized forms of Buddhism during this age?
0: Right. Um, I, I think scholars previous to this book had certainly... Been questioning the traditional Tibetan historical accounts of this so-called dark age, mm-hmm. age of fragmentation, or whatever you want to call it. Um, the The traditional accounts blame the whole thing on this demonic king Long Dharma, who supposedly, around the mid middle of the ninth century, closed down all the Buddhist monasteries and persecuted Buddhists and. Um, and sort of plunged, and, and, uh, plunged Tibet into darkness, sort of uh, ending the, the glory days of the Tibetan Empire when Tibetans were in control of much of Central Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, and so s- scholars had already, you know, many had already questioned this and pointed out that there, the, the reasons for the collapse of the empire – were probably more complicated than a demonic king's, you know, mm-hmm. lone influence, um, and the economic factors may have been at work, and that the collapse wasn't didn't happen wasn't as precipitous, but in fact it was a gradual process that happened over many decades. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but maybe I mean there's probably a few exceptions, but I maybe. I could say that the what's new about what this book does is that it it then takes the next step by saying okay, but then what what exactly happened in this age of fragmentation or dark age? Um, uh, once it was once the empire had collapsed, what what made this? You know, again, the traditional. History say nothing happened. The Mm. lamp of the Dharma, the typical metaphor is the lamp of the Dharma, the flame of the Dharma went out or was extinguished. And only at the end of the 10th century were the embers sort of rekindled and Buddhism began to flourish again. But um, so in in the same spirit of sort of questioning the traditional accounts, I, uh, you know, maybe previous scholars had suggested, well, maybe it wasn't completely dark.
2: Mm -hmm. um,
0: But I really wanted to explore more fully what happened during those years. And Mm -hmm. one of the results of um, my work with the Dunhuang manuscripts uh, was to gradually recognize how many of them dated from this dark age. Mm -hmm. That, that in fact, you know, for example, Sir Oral Stein, who's the archaeologist who originally brought these manuscripts to London
2: mm-hmm.
0: very quickly he came up with this theory that well they probably date from the imperial period that ended with Long Dharma
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, because that's when Tibet the Tibetan Empire was at the height of its power and it controlled Dunhuang and that's probably therefore when Tibetan was being written.
1: So this is early ninth century then.
0: Yeah. So okay. he thought well so most of these must date from the early ninth century, mm. uh, but. Gradually, as I was working on these manuscripts, it became apparent that especially the Tantric manuscripts really almost all date to the 10th century.
2: Mm. Uh,
0: so, and, and so I started realizing, you know, the norm, normally we think, well, we have very little literature from this, this age of fragmentation.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so who knows what happened? Because the monasteries had collapsed, the centralized political authority had collapsed, and we have little in the way of evidence. Mm. And in fact, we—that's not entirely true. But if once you redate the Dunhuang collection or large portions of it, you suddenly realize we actually have quite a number of windows into that period. Mm. Um, and so, and it struck me as particularly significant that so many of the Tantric manuscripts dated from that period. Mm -hmm. You know, there are some that date from the ninth century, but those, uh, they're, they they do not seem to contain so much Tantric material. I see. Um, which fits with what you'd expect because there were, there were imperial decrees, um, against the Tantras or against the, Public dissemination of the tantras; they wanted to control it within the court, right? Um, so, and and so, you know, what we find at Dunhuang implies that after the collapse of the empire and the centralized authority, then uh, the, the Tibetans were sort of freed to plunge into the world of tantric Buddhism, and and by the 10th century, you find tantric texts being written. Uh, at Dunhuang.
1: right so 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 one of the um w- 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 it seems like one of the central um uh one of the central arguments in this chapter is the way in which uh the sort of poli- political fragmentation um was mirrored by a fragmentation of Buddhism where um this t- uh Tibetan myth and ritual especially the um the the subjugation of Rudra myth were sort of applied to Um, to local deities um, and in uh, sort of catering to the interests of local patrons. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering if you could discuss that, uh, just describe that for the listeners a bit, because uh, that seems quite central to not only this chapter, but also um, what you talk about in uh, later chapters in, in which uh, this sort of localized demon subjugation was later on sort of applied to Tibet as a whole
0: yeah um well so once uh once you decide that well, once you recognize that the the imperial court collapses gradually and starting around the middle of the ninth century um and they the therefore sort of monastic and imperial control over Buddhism is gradually lost mm-hmm. you end up with and I and you accept the idea that Buddhism continued to be s- practiced in Tibet, you end up with a, a picture that is more uh, th- about localized traditions of Buddhist practice um, that were not as dependent on large scale monasticism that patronized by the court um, and uh, and. So at Dunhuang, some you. This gets into a larger issue of the nature of the tantric literature at Dunhuang too, um, which is actually the next book project I'm working on. Um, what, when I came to the British Library to, to catalog these tantric manuscripts, uh, I maybe somewhat simplistically thought, oh, I'll be I'll be reading some tantras. Uh, and I got there, and in fact, there is basically one tantra, hmm. and and you know hundreds and hundreds of ritual manuals, sadhanas, and, and vidis, and so on. Huh. And uh, of course, this is lived religion. This this is what people actually read and use. Mm. You know, study notes, ritual manuals, and so on, and um, and so in part, this uh, opened my eyes to the important role that this kind of extra-canonical genre of uh, ritual manuals played in in Buddhist history. Mm. And, I mean, in the Chinese canon, more of this kind of literature was preserved, but in the Tibetan canon, relatively little. Hmm. uh was preserved. There are a few very important sadhanas and, and so on that are by famous Indians that, that you find in, in the tenjur, but mm-hmm. but uh but for the most part it's the tantras that are kept and and some commentaries and um and you know there that completely ignores the fact that there were thousands and thousands of Tibetans, uh, with their own personal ritual texts Mm. and none of this was, you know, preserved. And so you end up with this kind of, uh, um, invisible, the, Mm. the invisible genre of very localized, uh, literature that's very flexible because it's outside the canon. You can slip in your own prayer, you know, at your own add your own comments in the margins, <laughs> as one as even a modern Buddhist today does.
1: Uh-huh, right, um, mm-hmm. and
0: so actually this so this is the topic of a, a totally different book, but like this of course was going on in India too, and so the the, the theme of that book is don't forget just how important this. this invisible genre was, even if we can't see it, it's going on behind the scenes and this then, mm. this genre of ritual manuals was actually sort of the petri dish where a lot of this creativity, ritual innovation mm. and so on could take place and then occasionally was re-encapsulated by a new canonical tantra and then new ritual manuals would spin out of that and continue to develop. So this is kind of how tantric ritual developed over time was through this individual literature. So returning to the book at hand, um, uh, what this also means is that a lot of the ritual, tantric ritual texts from Dunhuang include, reflect local interests as these rituals that are brought up from India are sort of copied and reinterpreted, Mm -hmm. um, and they, you know, the, the Tibetans inevitably include some of their own interests, and this is, you know, maybe, maybe even easier because uh, we no longer have the watchful eye of of large scale monasticism mm. sort of watching over their shoulders. I see, um, and so Tibetans as they localized. Uh, and sort of got into Buddhism at a l- local level, they were also free to kind of innovate in a way mm. and develop their own sort of truly Tibetan traditions, which then became, you know, the, the the cause of much anguish and consternation and suppression after the Dark Age when the monasteries came back into being and... and authorities started saying, wait a minute, this isn't real Buddhism anymore. This has been mixed up with Tibetan bun and other local concerns and some of this you don't see in India. So this camp, this is corrupt. You know, this is not real <laughs> Buddhism anymore. Um, but, you know, my argument is that, that, nonetheless, this was a, an actually a very creative and important moment in the history of the Tibetan assimilation of Buddhism and that later authorities, while they criticized these kind of moves that age of fragmentation Tibetans made, they very much benefited from the results, which is to say the sort of widespread conversion of Tibet into being a Buddhist uh, country. So, mm. yeah.
1: Thank you. Um, so, so we got... Okay, so I, I, I just wanted to um, move on a bit and uh, look at, <coughs> excuse me, in Chapter 3, in which you focus on the uh, liber- liberation rite, um, and you, you're looking specifically at how it's uh, described in one particular Dunhuang manuscript. Um, um, now, the liberation rite itself entails the preparation of a sacred, consecrated area or mandala, Um, The placement of the sacrificial victim in the middle, the execution of the victim, uh, be it a real victim or a sort of substitute victim, and the purification of the victim's consciousness. Every step of this rite appears to require various uh, ritual performances and the successful maintenance of certain states of mind, I guess specifically by the officiant. Um, So, well, that's a a pretty gross uh, oversimplification, but... I, I wanted to, uh, one of the sort of issues that you address, um, is whether is the problem of whether this is to be taken allegorically, whether this is a prescription for actual human sacrifice or whether it's a ritual in which, uh, as you described before, in which an effigy is substituted for a live sacrificial victim.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, uh,
1: I mean, maybe that's unfair to ask because I suppose that's like the million, what the million dollar question or whatever. <laughs> I don't know.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, in the most simplistic, uh, reading that, that, you know, was kind of, you know, the, the sort of, yeah, like the, uh, the Fox news, uh, USA today yeah. sort of question of what, um, what, you know, w- were people really doing Buddhist human sacrifice? Yeah. Uh, and, um, what I tried to do was to raise that question and keep it very much alive through the whole book. Mm-hmm. Um, and to make it as real and worrying as possible so that the reader, um, felt some of the import of that question, mm-hmm. um, and thereby kind of used that as a as an entryway into these vexing kind of questions of violence and what's good violence and bad violence and real violence and imaginary violence and symbolic violence and what's mm-hmm. the difference and um, so what I tried to do was to to Yeah, not to answer that question, but Mm -hmm. at the same time to insist that we must answer that question. Yeah. Um, And that we are sort of ethically, you know, it's an imperative that we figure out, you know, in the cases of violence, you know, ethics are involved and we need to make a judgment call about whether a certain violent act is good or bad. Um, So I didn't want to sort of allow myself or the, my reader to get off the hook by saying, Oh, we can't answer the question. Mm -hmm. You know, wanted to sort of push it and ride that line, worry that line a little more uh, closely by pushing the limit and saying, maybe this really was happening and we can't quite tell. And, um, and, uh, and I mean, I don't think, this particular manual, it's possible to say for sure one way or the other, mm-hmm. um, whether this is a case of live human sacrifice or just a symbolic ritual. but I think it's you know clear enough that in tantric religion, human sacrifice has happened over the centuries mm-hmm. and then that raises the question of is that Orthodox? Or was that just a misinterpretation of abusing the teachings? But that very question re-involves us in the question of what is good and bad violence. Mm -hmm. Um, So you end up in these sort of circles of reasoning that I wanted to explore and go round and round and round without kind of coming to any firm conclusions.
1: Right. I see what you're saying. Oh, okay. Well, no, thank that, that, that clarifies your approach to it. Thank you. Um, so, um, in, in, in the, in the following chapter you turn to the West, the, uh, to King Yeshe-Oh, I don't know if that's the correct pronunciation, but, um, King yeshe of Western Tibet and, uh, his edict of 990 in which he criticized certain tantric practices, um, in particular, the liberation rite, um, Now, you you argue that in this edict, which was not the only one he issued um, of this nature, uh, you argue that this edict should be understood in the context of the need for uh, the king to have a monopoly on sanctioned violence. Um, Thus, he was not in theory opposed to symbolic violence, but he was opposed to actual violence as sanctioned by the liberation right or as apparently sanctioned by the liberation right. So I was Here I wondered if you could just describe for the listeners uh, King Yesheo's views of the liberation right, as well as his uh, project to uh, nominally separate while in reality unify um, political and religious power. And obviously this is, as you very eloquently describe in the chapter, sort of related to larger questions of the relationship between um, Buddhism and the state and Buddhist history more generally.
0: Yeah, so um, uh, I mean, in a way, this chapter is kind of uh, the pivot point of this book, and um, and partly when I look when I first encountered this Rudra myth and the, this manual from Dunhuang, this liberation right, uh, you know, if you know something about Tibetan history. The immediate temptation is to say, "Aha! This is the kind of stuff that later Tibetans complain about. Mm. And that that this is the kind of stuff that these Dark Age Tibetans <laughs> were doing in the darkness of their demonic ignorance and um, and uh, and that and therefore sort of dismiss it. This wasn't real Buddhism, so we can just kind of dismiss it and move on and continue on with our comfortable view of what Buddhism really is. Mm -hmm. Um, And historically that kind of happened, um, except that it didn't entirely work. Um, uh, But so I took, for for myself personally, in my own research, I found myself wondering about this and I, I started to recognize in myself, my own kind of psychological uh, issues around reckoning with violence in Buddhism Mm. and the way that they played into historical narratives of Tibet. Mm. Uh, And I started to realize that that was also going on within the Tibetan's uh, writings um, themselves. So I framed that, that chapter. That's why I frame it as... A sort of comparison between this King Yesheu and mm-hmm. this this Western, uh, this um, British uh, writer in I, well, now I can't remember since it's the 18th century India. Um, <clears throat> and uh, who's working on the Kalika Purana and a, a Hindu um, rite of human sacrifice potentially. Um, anyway, so, so that sort of crossover, this this pivot point between us as a reader, as a modern reader of these texts and Tibetans as readers of their own tradition.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so I, I took Yeshe O as, as a particularly nice case study because he stands also at a moment, a pivot point in Tibetan history where mm. um, Tibetans are emerging out of this this. Uh, quote-unquote dark age Mm -hmm. and and new centers of authority and monastic Buddhism are returning. So, um, since writing the book, you know, I've been continued to work on Yeshe'o. Of course, Mm -hmm. right when I sent off the book for the last time to (laughs) the publisher, a new biography of Yeshe'o appeared with all kinds of other edicts, which would have been lovely to have. Mm. Um. And so I've been working on those and getting a better sense of his larger legal project, because basically, not only did Buddhism collapse with the end of the Tibetan Empire, but also the rule of law. So, mm-hmm. yes, is sort of trying to recreate a legal system and monastic Buddhism at the same time, um, kind of on what he saw as a bit of a blank slate, which was the Dark Age. Mm, right. And He's working in Western Tibet, and um, and so uh, and so, he, I found his writings particularly significant for how he was denigrating a lot of the uh, local Tibetan practices around him in favor of, you know, monastic sutra-based. Buddhism. Mm. Um, so it, it's a first kind of moment when you start to see a later Tibetan attitude about the age of fragmentation starting to emerge. Mm. Um, and the fact that he's involved in law and and reestablishing monastic Buddhism uh, just seems significant in that the Dark Age is being darkened at this moment um, by someone who wants to use it as a kind of other against which he can then define his own uh, pure mm. monastic Buddhism and yeah, so put all of the negativity and corruption and violence into this other box and allow him to then move on and with his pure vision of monastic Buddhism intact.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Um, and I suppose that relates to something you talk about near the end of the chapter, where you talk about the type of Buddhism promoted by King Yesheo, uh, by Atisha and the Gugge court, uh, sort of emphasize the um, importance of monastic precepts and adherence to ethical behavior. Um, And that this, or at least it was seen by Tibetans as emphasizing these facets of Buddhism and how this sort of set the stage for a transformation of uh, real violence into symbolic violence and also for the development of certain Tibetan Buddhist orders later on that were interested more in sort of monastic discipline ethics and sort of doctrinal matters than in maybe tantric ritual. Um, Yeah. So this... uh, the, and now now Chapter five moves us forward in time to the eleventh and twelfth centuries. And um, this was actually perhaps my uh, I found this personally found this chapter the, the most fascinating. Uh, and here you argued that the that tantric violence, symbolic or otherwise, and the Tibetan view that the age of fragmentation was a dark ages of sorts, um, that both these ideas were instrumental in creating a new pan-Tibetan Buddhist identity. So I'd like to begin with the Tantra demon subjugating that produced a plethora of narratives about local demons being pacified during the age of trans uh, during the age of fragmentation. So you look at t- at a text called the Pillar Testament, uh, a composite work most likely dating from sometime between the late 11th and mid 12th centuries. And you argue that this sort of demon subjugation on a local level uh, that occurred during the age of fragmentation in this new era was applied to the entire realm of Tibet in the form of the Rakshasi uh, demoness legend and the construction of the, these 12 outline temples that pin down the demis, who is located, I guess, actually physically beneath the land of Tibet. Um, so you you seem to be talking about two things here. The first is the pacification of the entire realm of Tibet through temple construction, as just mentioned. And then the other is... Uh, individual cases of temple construction in tantric Buddhism uh, both in Tibet and India and the way in which such construction um, and particularly the pre-construction subjugation rituals are both a set of actual ritual practices and also a sort of symbolic arena in which Buddhist masters uh, demonstrated their abilities um, so so I guess what's my question here <laughs> I guess first what is the pillar testament? Uh, if you could just describe what that is and what is the Iraq, uh shassi demoness legend i know that listeners who have studied tibetan buddhism will, will probably be intimately familiar with the latter of these two but those whose expertise lies elsewhere uh, lies elsewhere may not be
0: yeah um so the pillar testament is a terma a revel a revealed text um that supposedly um, describes King Son Sen Gampo's 7th century uh, activities in building um, these this network of border taming temples um, that were necessary to build over the limbs of this demoness of the landscape of Tibet before they could com- complete construction of the uh, the sort of sent over uh, the central sort of sometimes called cathedral of Tibetan Buddhism which is in Lhasa and supposedly re- resides over the demoness's heart mm. so she had to be kind of pinned down before uh, before she before this central Rasa Chulnang could be completed um, so what
1: was the second right. You? Um yeah, and I should also mention for uh, anyone who's listening has the book, on page one hundred fourteen in your book, you have a very nice picture of this, an image of this actually sort of the land of Tibet with this demoness being and kind of pinned down by these um the figure of the demoness imposed on a sort of uh uh visual depiction of Tibet. Right. So the second question uh was uh basically the um well just what the docsh Chassis demoness legend is this idea that there's this sort of uh, um, you know demon underneath so I I I, I guess what I what what you seem to be saying here is that this was a sort of uh, or what I understood was that this was a um, application of these kind of demon this type of demon subjugation that had become so popular during the age of fragmentation it was sort of a application of that at a sort of national level, national is not quite the word, but um, an application of it to the entire realm of Tibet. Is that correct?
0: Yeah. So the previous chapter about Yeshio, if that was a kind of case study of the writings of one individual, this king right. in the late 10th century, then what this chapter does is kind of move into, to explore how some of those same themes of defining a negative demonic other Against which pure monastic Buddhism could be, uh, you know, defined. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that this then took on a larger, that those kind of themes took on larger. That rhetoric took on larger significance across all of Tibetan Buddhism. And this famous myth of Tseng Gampo, the first great Buddhist king in the te- in the seventh century, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, establishing. The 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 heart, uh, the 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 central um, temple of all of Tibetan Buddhism uh, in Lhasa, um, you know, is understood in within the same same kind of terms of you know there's this fundamental uh, demonic identity of Tibet and Tibetans mm-hmm. that needs to be subjugated by the enlightening influence of Indian Buddhism mm. that, and, that that can sort of pin down the Tibetan character. Mm-hmm. Um, and Janet Gatso had written an article, I can't remember when, now in the 80s or 90s, just outlining some of this. Mm. Um, so I was very much building on her work here. I see. Um, uh, but tracing it back more into Indian precursors and and placing it within this larger context of um the language tibetan buddhist language around violence mm-hmm. and and you know to tell you the truth one this this chapter is a short probably the shortest chapter in the book and was originally part of the chapter that follows it on buddhist warfare mm-hmm. and part of what i was interested in doing was exploring two kind of spatial models that Mm. one finds in Tibetan Buddhism Mm -hmm. that I think relate to the Tibetan relationship with violence. Um, And so this chapter outlines one in which the demon is pinned beneath the Mm -hmm. edifice of Buddhism. And you find that also, I trace it all the way back to stupas and so on in India, where you find um, relics, death, uh, and sometimes demons pinned beneath stupas and buildings, temples. Mm-hmm. This ra- raises the issue of foundation sacrifice, mm-hmm. which is, well, whether it ever happened or not is sort of a uh, kind of rumors uh, of this practice. You find all through Southeast Asia and Asia and into Europe and so on, the idea of killing some innocent, often a child, and, burying them in the foundation of a building and somehow the spirit then of that sacrificed person infuses and strengthens the walls of the the building. Mm. Um, And I found that image interesting in terms of understanding this, this Rakshasi myth and Mm. the idea of building Tibetan Buddhism on violence on demonic violence and concealing it underneath and yet somehow the power and strength and spirit of that demonic violence continues to lurk beneath and sort of infuse the the edifice of Tibetan Buddhism. Mm. So in sort of symbolic terms I found this kind of an interesting right. myth to explore. Um and, and and, yeah, or,
1: no, I'm sorry. So and 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 as you clearly shown in this chapter that's linked to an idea of uh, Tibetans being somehow spiritually inferior uh, vis-a-vis in all things Indian, and also um, this idea that they're sort of somehow by nature demonic, and t- Tibet is and Tibetans are, and they must be sort of subjugated by Indian Buddhism. So we're, we're getting close to the end, but I just wanted you to quickly contrast that with what you already alluded to, which was uh, another spatial model, which is this topic of chapter six, in which um, which involves a, quite a different. Uh, self conception, Tibetan self conception,
0: right. So then, yeah, that moves. Is we're sort of moving chronologically here, and so that moves to the Mongol conquest of Tibet and and the the sort of gradual extinction of Buddhism in India and the way that Tibetans suddenly start to find themselves as the inheritors and authorities on on true Buddhism. Mm. Um, and so the spatial model that I explore in here is the idea that, uh, which you can also find all the way back into the earliest Buddhist stupas in India, is the idea that Buddhism sits at the center and pushes instead of pushing the demonic, negative other underneath, mm-hmm. it pushes it out to the to the boundaries to the to the margins. Mm. Um, so uh, there's that book haunting the Buddha um, mm-hmm. by De Caroli, where he talks about how you have these laukika spirits on the Vedikas and, and Toranas around um, Sanchi and so on in India. Um, and in the same way in tantric mandalas, you have demons lurking outside of the Buddhist mandala who aren't allowed in and, and there are these worldly laukika protectors of the tantric system. And so this whole model is a kind of alternative spatial model but also potent in the Tibetan imagination. Um, and so I used it part, uh, to characterize this late, slightly later period where Tibetans found themselves now um, at the center of the Buddhist universe with the Mongols at the edges and, and the, you know, asking them what real Buddhism is instead of Tibetans going to India and asking Indians. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there, there was sort of a role reversal um, and, uh, and with this, I also explored the issue of Buddhist warfare, I think was that same chapter, mm-hmm. um, where, uh, um, the themes of violence and demonic de- sub- demon subjugation take on a large scale kind of form in war magic on behalf of these Mongols. And sometimes on behalf of the Mongols, sometimes against the Mongols. And I think the chapter culminates with the fifth Dalai Lama's rise to power in the 17th century, Mm. um, which is very complicated and involves all sorts of political intrigue and details. But if you read the fifth Dalai Lama's own autobiographical account, he frames it very much in kind of mythic and ritual terms. Mm. Uh, And these are the terms that I've been exploring all through the book of of demon subjugation and Mm -hmm. liberation rights and war magic being kind of the grand scale politic political sort of instantiation of these same issues
1: yeah well we've taken a lot of your time i want to ask you one final question i also wanted before i ask you i just want to note to listeners that there's loads and loads and loads that we didn't cover a lot about uh, 19th um, and 18th century uh, European depictions of Tibetan Buddhism and some uh, 19th um, century Tibetan and 20th century Tibetan depictions of Tibetan Buddhism and violence. Um, a lot of stuff about Indian precedents and Indian um, sort of comparisons that we didn't discuss, but, um, but you'll have to read the book to get all that But as a final question, I just wanted to ask if there's something that you're uh, working on at the moment. I know you've got a book under review with Columbia University Press uh, through the eyes of the compendium of of intentions, the history of the Tibetan ritual tradition. Um, Could you say a word about that or anything else that you're working on? Um, Yeah, that book
0: which that working title will probably be replaced. It's a bit clunky and um, I haven't come up with a better alternative yet, right. but, um, uh, that's basically just my dissertation reworked. Um, and, uh, um, maybe more interesting, at least to me, because <laughs> that's sort of old news and I should have done it immediately, but left it in the background for too long. Mm. Uh, but th- then, then there's this other book project that I, I mentioned on the early development of Tantric ritual, Buddhist ritual as seen through the lens of these Dunhuang manuscripts. Mm. Um, so in a way, this is kind of looking at Indian Tantric ritual but using these Central Asian manuscripts mm. um, as, as uh, the looking glass. And so, um, you know, th- this is what I talked about before where I ponder the larger issue of the role of the genre of ritual manuals and, uh, and then look at how, what we actually learn from this kind of time capsule of lived Buddhist religion at this crucial moment in the development of Tantra. Um, I think the, like I said, most of these manuscripts, these Tibetan Tantric manuscripts date from, this so-called dark age or age of fragmentation in the 10th century. Mm-hmm. But they reflect upon in the development of Tantric Buddhism in India. That's more like the end of the 8th, turn of the 9th century. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is actually a kind of crucial moment in the development of Tantric Buddhism um, where you got, get a lot of the ritual structures but a lot of the content is, and, and the moves that are made within those larger structures are still being worked out. Hmm. So it's sort of an interesting stepping stone. And I think this material yeah. um, has a lot to offer our understanding.
1: Well, we'll look forward to that. And uh, I just want to thank you very much for speaking with me today. And I wanted to thank all our listeners for tuning in. That's it for today's new books in Buddhist studies. See you next time.